this is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today are Armstrong Fondiem. Hi, everyone. I'm part of the Chaos community, and I work with the Evolution Working Group, where I try to see the evolution of how metrics relating to open source health people in communities. Sophia Vargas. Uh, my name is Sophia Vargas. I am a program manager within Google's open source programs office focused on research and operations. I've been working with the chaos community for the last eight months, focusing mainly on the risk working group where we talk a lot about risks to projects, uh, particularly things like dependencies. So very excited to be here today to talk to Neil about dependencies. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be with you again today. I'm a co-founder of the Chaos Project, a governing board member, and I've been involved in several working groups throughout the years since we started the project. And right now, my focus is on Google Summer of Code. We just got accepted and are now working with students who are interested in working with us. So that's exciting. Outside of Chaos, I work at Biturgia as the director of sales. And I've also recently started working with IEEE as a open volunteering as the lead for the community advisory group. For today's Chaos Cast episode, we have a special guest joining us from Sweden, Emil Barrios from Debricht. Hi, Emil. Hello. So thanks a lot for having me. So my name is Emil, and uh, I'm a co-founder and the head of data science of a small startup in Sweden, in the southern parts of Sweden, called Debricht. And we work with uh, software composition analysis and open source management. And uh, we have been following the Chaos Project for a while now, where we are we're in the space of measuring and analyzing and understanding open source communities and uh, open source code as well. And uh, have taken a lot of inspiration to build our own model that we call open source health. So I'm very excited to be here and to have this discussion about about measuring open source and understanding uh, the value that can bring to the different companies and industries. Yeah, welcome. I look forward to our conversation as well. You used the word here, software composition analysis. Can you help us understand this? So software composition analysis is, I don't know how old the term is, but it's the task of understanding what your software is composed of. We are quite new in this space. We were founded in 2018, and so a new player here, but we have our older cousins in this space. You may know them as Synopsis and Black Duck, White Source and Sneak, where we try to understand how you use 
different dependencies or open source projects in your own written or proprietary software. And there are some tasks in this which is important and has been somewhat solved today, such as finding security vulnerabilities in these open source projects and mapping those to what open source projects you're using and what version of those, as well as looking at compliance and risk according to what licenses you are allowed to use in your proprietary software. But then there is this natural next step within software composition analysis and looking at the quality of the open source that you're actually using and understanding how you are using it and and what ways you can leverage different states of the different communities out in the open source world. So you you said a a few terms that are widely discussed. Again, I know picking into your definitions here, but I'm curious to get your perspective given the role that your company is playing. You talked about open source health and measuring the quality of open source. And in the chaos project, we've been working on metrics to help define what that means. So I'd love to hear what it means for your customers and your platform, particularly who, what kind of customers and what does it mean for them? This is a very hard question to answer. What is quality and open source? Have anyone read the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I see some uh, heads nodding around here, and I think it's a fantastic book. There's a movie as well, but... I love the the movie, and I have the book on my shelf, and it's been there for 15 years. I still have to read it. I don't feel particularly bad about spoiling a movie and a book that's a lot of years old. When they try to answer the question of, of the universe, of of life, of everything, they come up with the answer 42. And that somewhat doesn't make sense in the start, at least, to the characters within that book. But I have a different take on that. And I think that we should view it as that there are 42 different answers to that question, because it's very subjective. It's subjective to the context of your life and what you're doing and what you think is important. And I think that parallel within open source health and how we measure that, how we measure quality, is that it is very subjective to the end user and that we cannot play uh, play the ruler and the all-knowing being of open source here because we are not the ones to judge it. And I don't view myself or the, our company as that type of entity, but rather I want to build out a mathematical and computational model that enables us to agree on a foundation that we then can adapt to our own specific needs. To start with, we have gathered all open source and put that in uh, different databases to uh, make it computationally scalable so that we can ask questions to the open source of the world and gather that in a layer that we call features. Those are stuff that is interesting to the user and is a layer that is not latent. It is stuff that is known, such as the trend of contributors, maybe the amount of stars or more complex features such as the skew of the contributions to an open source project. And on that, we have built a mathematical model that we have have suggestions on metrics, such as a contributor metrics that aggregate different variables or different features into different latent layers in the model. So we have a metric for contributors, but in the end, 
a consumer of those features could create their own metrics and adapt those to their reality so they can at scale analyze and understand thousands or millions of open source projects they're typically using thousands and get an analysis of a portfolio of open source projects in an instant so we have built an open source health model that enables you to subjectively measure open source projects at scale according to what you believe is quality in open source. I guess there's more of a question about what your company does beyond building this data set is how you guide customers in creating the right contacts that's appropriate for them. And I'm curious, knowing first who you're working with predominantly, and I guess a quick background about this question, I came from the IT consulting space. And I think there, anytime you get in the room with a customer, there's always, you're working against pre-existing notions and you're trying to re-educate them as to how to think through this and something like the evolution of software design and incorporation of greater amounts of open source. And just generally curious what people struggle with the most in terms of what you need to help them understand or re-educate them in terms of what is valuable in here and how they might use it. So I guess that's a really large, bulky question around how you help contextualize this for users, but then also how do you help them understand why they should care about these things? It uh, depends vastly on the size of the customer, mainly. Like larger companies such as uh, Ericsson from Sweden as well, they know quite a lot about what open source they're using and how to evaluate it. And I guess Google does that as well, especially in terms of license and vulnerability management. That's not something that's completely new, but it is a bit new to, to smaller customers. And then by smaller, I mean below 500 developers can still be quite large companies, but the penetration of open source in those code bases is typically a lot higher. The average penetration of open source is about 65%. So in a proprietary stack at a company, about 65% of that code is open source. That is the mean, but it's a lot higher for smaller companies, a lot, a lot higher. So open source is, I'd say, a more important space for those smaller companies as they're using it more, but they don't have those rigorous processes of license and compliance and legal and so on. And then that's where our tool really comes in, where we try to automate detection of licenses and setting up policies for the developers and managing your vulnerabilities in a way that is easy for both security teams and for developers so that you can take the actions where you really need to take actions and spend more time developing. And looking at the two parts that we're working and have been working with for the past two years and looking at what we're developing and working with now with open source health, what we see from our customers and from from sales meetings and from discussions with panels and so on is that it's not about one thing here. It's about a more complete vision of understanding in depth your open source. It's not only about metrics and measuring the contribution activity, but also understanding how does these licenses affect me and what's the effort in terms of looking at these, maybe these higher contribution projects with more vulnerabilities But how does that affect me as a developer and looking at, okay, here we have something that has a bit lower contribution score, but they don't need to handle all these vulnerabilities because they have better security practices. 
and really understanding that as a more holistic picture of the consummation of open source is something that we see here is what customers want, especially in like the mid size space. I loved your 65% number because as an analyst, I'm constantly looking for generic industry metrics around the penetration of open source software. And I think you, some of your similar companies and competitors like Black Duck have also published statistics about the amount of open source that they see in their customer bases, but it's always going to be biased toward the data that you have access to. <laughs> so I think that's, it's, that's nice to have that benchmark because I think I have also come from a survey and research background where you ask people and then you get numbers all over the place that are subjective and not necessarily always informed. Something that is not maybe the top of mind project of uh, mine, but something that I really want to do is in our tool, in our software service, I want to have this number pop up. You have an open source penetration of 82%, something like that. That would be fantastic to call the curiosa, the fun knowledge. So... Emil, I I know you've been in this space for quite some time and as a lot of work on open source health, I believe you're also coming out of university research. Can you maybe talk about how your journey started and the questions you've been asking and your approach has evolved over the time? So uh, Drabit was founded from a research project uh, conducted at Lund University down in the southern of Sweden, together with industry partners such as uh, Ericsson and Axis, where we were looking at open source vulnerabilities to start with from the angle of IoT and uh, how that spreads through different IoT devices, depending on the versions in particular devices and so on. But... We found at the end of the project that it's a larger problem in the application stack and that it's still something that's not completely yet solved in many ways technically as it should be. For instance, the problem where, yes, you are using a vulnerable package and you are using that version that is actually vulnerable, but are you calling the vulnerable functionality? What is actually the vulnerable functionality of that open source project? Uh, Problems like that were way more important, I'd say, for us at that time and still are. And so we changed the direction of the company from looking at IoT into the application stack and have realized more and more from coming from that space of security that everyone at the company really loves open source. A lot of us are contributors to some of our favorite projects and it really took us in that direction where we want to look, be more in the open source management and open source, being the heart of open source consumption for a company in that type of space where we can really try to enable developers to have a better time developing applications with open source and leveraging that to its maximum potential. I think I have a question concerning your future engineering. Because I'm a little bit concerned when you do future engineering across different sizes of company with historical data against those that are very new and like the small sizes of uh, community. Doesn't you introduce a kind of bias on that perspective? So yes, that is a challenge. And you can't really compare Kubernetes 
to one of my favorite small time projects with 200 stars. No, that's not possible. And you simply can't do that. And that was actually a mathematical challenge that we looked upon in our early research that how do you make a fair comparison? Uh, because you can't compare 200 stars to 10,000 stars. And we framed it as the problem, how do we make a fair comparison that if you go from 100 stars to 200 stars, that matters a lot for your open source project. But if you go to 10,000 stars to 10,100 stars, that's not as significant to you. So what we did here is that we separated the raw calculations of the features into, and then we normalize, as we call it, over each separate language. So JavaScript, Java, and so on. We are thinking of normalizing over functionality as well, but for now, over language is that what's what we're doing. So when we normalize, we first remove some outliers. So fun fact here, do you know the median number of forks on open source projects on GitHub? It's zero. If I had to. <laughs> I was about to say most project there are millions and millions of projects. Most of them are not forked. So if you're looking at the median, so 50% of the projects, yeah. I would have guessed it was a very small number. Yeah. So if you remove the lower half, it's still zero. So it's very skewed that there are no forks. But forks do matter to the projects that usually to the projects that we're looking at. So we do some outlier removal and remove all the zero forks here, for instance. Then we have a distribution of forks overall open source projects. And those distributions, depending on what feature it is, if it's number of contributors or skew of the contributions, can look very different. Some of them are normal, some of them are, most of them are in some type of logarithmic distribution. But what we do here to make it understandable for humans is that we project it everything, we project it to a normal distribution. So this is called quantile transformation. It's where we basically divide the distribution into a number of bins, and then we linearly scale each bin so that it fits a normal distribution. And the effect that has is that for larger projects where you have 10,000 stars, to get a significant impact on the normalized score, you need to go to 15,000 stars. And then you will get an additional 50 points on your score or whatever. But for smaller projects, if you want to compare those, to get an additional 50 points, you only need an additional maybe 20 stars. So that means that you can compare small projects to small projects. And you can compare large projects to large projects as well. And I think something that waves in here is also that a large discussion and the most, I think uh, one of the best examples here is OpenSSL. Project with low contributor score for us or low contribution, is that a bad project? And uh, of course, the answer is maybe not necessarily because it may be a very mature project that doesn't need that many contribution nowadays. But then... Looking at our take, what we want to look at is, no, it's, it is actually, you do have a low contributor score because you don't have active contributors. And that's something that you need to monitor. But then you need to also look at maturity, which is something completely different. And this is where contextuality and what is important to you in your subjective view is important. That you as a company should be able to 
put your subjective view into those metrics and say that, yeah, I want mature projects and I allow low contribution scores on mature projects, but I want to at least get to know which ones they are and if I should take a look at them. The way that you've described your model has been very compartmentalized around projects. So I was curious how much you bring in the context of the connectivity between projects and ecosystems. So in, you mentioned that you're doing it by language buckets, which I think is a natural grouping within projects. But there's sort of a, you're pulling this in as dependencies. So there's going to be sort of the dependency chain or tree around projects where there might be some codependencies or things that work better or less well together. So I'm, I'm curious how, if you treat them all as isolated decision points, or is there any contextualization that happens between how other projects are interacting with that project? So we are a startup and we want to do a lot of things. And I, I really love that uh, question because I think it's super cool in how that graph analysis could be done in the end, but we are not quite there yet that we have started looking into that. But we are currently developing the graph model of all open source. So how all open source is dependent on version level on one another, which is the enabler to really contextualize how different metrics and how different contributors propagate through different communities and through different open source projects. And I think that is also very key here to see like what open source projects plays well into each other. What are the ones that if you use those two together, you can create something really great. And using that graph model to find those open source projects that are complementary to each other and understanding what the opportunity that you may be missing as a company with the open source that you don't use. You've been talking about the various, I think you're calling them like functionality or features around a project that you might weight in your model. And you've mentioned sort of the popularity metrics and stars and contributors as people. But I have to ask the inverse of that, which is the person. So I'm curious if you're interested in or tracking sort of the influence of individuals in these systems. I think I'm just thinking about from a vulnerability perspective, there are highly functional, productive individuals that work on projects. And then there's also the negative version of that person or entity that could be a person or not a person. And I'm curious, that's something that could often muck up very systematic approaches. And I'm curious how you handle it. Yeah. So I think that's a tricky question because I think there's some morale in it as well. We are not in the developer tracking business, which I think is important. We do not want to put metrics on individual developers. We want to be the superhero that enables open source and contributions and maybe in the long run be help companies help open source projects and not the other way around. And I think that that's a very holistic and important question in this world that needs solving. And I don't think that we should be the ones to say that this developer is one that you do not want in this project. But then again, there's different stages of this, I'd say. Of course, there are malicious developers as well, and there's a bunch of known malicious packages on NPM, for instance. And honestly, it's not too uncommon that we even discover those are being used. 
and are openly flagged as malicious supply chain attack types of packages. And those individuals don't have a particular problem tracking. But I think that's my personal view on that question. But then again, we are a young company developing cool technology with data to last us a lifetime. So, I mean, uh, I can't speak for all the future. I appreciate that. I did just throw in an ethics question unannounced. So I appreciate your candor with that. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. This question is hard as well in terms of not people, but open source projects as well. And I think it's important to say that it will never be our intent to say that something is not, to hurt people's feelings and say that something is not good enough, but rather to be in the position in the end where to flag where help is needed and see that these are great projects that needs help. And I actually have the perfect example of one of my favorite projects. It was called REST Plus, Flask REST Plus. So I'm a Pythonista, so I build a lot of things in Python. And this project was great. It automatically generated documentation and input validation and so on for my APIs and had a lot of flash to it when I developed it. And everyone thought I was cool because I had so great documentation. But that project went stale completely. The maintainers stopped responding to issues and stopped merging stuff, which was a problem. We had contributions that were waiting to be merged and that we needed as a company. And then a community fork emerged, which was great. And we started being active in that straight away, which is called RESTX now, Flask RESTX. I can really recommend that project. And the funny thing is here that we can really see in our model when we look at those two projects side by side, that the popularity of the old REST Plus is still quite high and they're still getting a lot of ecosystem buzz on Stack Overflow in comparison to its newer fork, RESTX, while the contribution metrics really tells you that this loan maintainer needs help with maintaining this project because it has gained too much attention for him to handle by himself. So I guess in the end, he got tired of answering all the issues and issues that were good that were new feature suggestions and so on to the project. So a community for emerged. So I think like open source health is a good possibility to be in a position where you as a company can really know where you can make impact in the community of open source. I mean, maybe solving an issue in TensorFlow or Kubernetes is maybe not the most needed issues to be solved in the open source community because there's so many engineers working on those. There are projects that are being used and people love all over the place that doesn't get the contributions that they need to be maintained for a while, for a longer time. And I think that's the RESTX and REST Plus is a good example there. You mentioned about this problem with the maintenance and that immediately draws me to the metrics that we we're talking about. Now, what really happens if a project grows to mature, maturity and they don't receive these new features, these tons of contributions? 
but then the maintainer has been there might be the just one person and has been there for close to a long period of time they don't respond to critical fixes or features that really needs immediate attention now all the metrics you mentioned above were mostly quantitative capturing so we did not really bring in this social aspect of this community and which is a huge concern because an open source community deals with the socio-technical so how do you really mitigate this aspect if they made a special on maintenance yeah and i, I think this quite waves into like how chaos um, and the auger and grimmer lab projects and what we are developing is different because measuring the nitty-gritty social ecosystem and details in an open source project is very hard. And that's something that you are doing in the Chaos project. And I think that's great, but it, it's really hard to scale. And it's really hard to analyze the millions of open source projects out there with high accuracy in those regards. Uh, of course, I can look at, find the main, the core team of an open source project and view their activity. Are they still committing to the project? Are they commenting on, on issues? Are they merging pull requests and so on? But looking into a deeper analysis of the social aspects of the community, um, I'd say that's hard to scale. And what I think here is that we have created a model so that you can know where to put your attention in to do your own manual, subjective, deeper analysis of an open source project, looking at the thousands of open source that you're using and seeing that these 10 are the ones I need to really understand because these are important to me. While you at Chaos are looking more at the community management perspective, which is where to understand those problems, both in a quantitative and a qualitative manner, is something that I guess you need to do, but also something that you have done. And as so you probably have tackled that problem yourself, it's probably very hard to scale over millions of projects at once. I think that is a fair thing to say that in chaos, we are always interested in both the quantitative, where we can scale it, but also qualitative aspects that are harder to scale. One of the things that I've been wondering about is maybe some translation between what you talk about with features and metrics and what we talk about with metrics, because you would call things like number of stars a feature, whereas in chaos terminology, we call that a metric, but then you combine those features into some calculations and then you come up with a metric. In chaos, we also have more complicated metrics that are made up of, I think we call them atomic metrics, and then we have these compositions of these smaller metrics. I guess in chaos, we're still struggling with that terminology. Maybe if you can introduce your terminology and walk us through, that might help us a little. We actually looked at your structure and we know your terminology, but we choose to make our own here or reverse it, so to say. Because as I've said, I come from the data perspective. I usually build machine learning models and play around with a lot of data. And there, we are used to the terminology that features is what the small parts that you derive of your data that you input to your model. Uh, so for us, the features is the lowest layer. These are usually 
queries into our database, such as the amount of stars of a project. And as I've said before, we normalize them into a normalized feature score. That is a normally distributed representation of that feature that is scaled from between a threshold, so zero to a thousand. To make those features more actionable, we aggregate them to practices is the middle layer, and in turn, we aggregate practices to one metric. And what metrics are the higher level stuff, the things that you glance upon over 100 projects and say that a metric, for instance, we have metrics on contributors, we have metrics on popularity, maturity, and security. And each metric, as I've said, is constructed of those practices. And practices are typically things that are questions you want answers to. In the contributor score metric, we're looking at is the core team still committed to the project? Is a practice. And that in turn in itself then consists of a couple of features that tries to imply that practice, such as does the core team still make commits to the project? Do they answer issues? Do they merge pull requests? Do they answer comments on issues or create their own issues? And so on. And looking at what the core team is doing to the project in terms of their commitment to the project. So that's one part of the full contributor metric. So what this actually becomes then in the end is that you have a metric that gives you an indication, I should look at a project. And then you look at the practices that are the questions you want answering to. And here we see that the adaptability that you can create your own practices, which we can scale, and you can try to answer the questions with features that you want answers to, and you can weight your different practices at custom what into your metrics, so your metrics are built up what you think is important. Thank you for that explanation. I just want also to add that it's a matter of domain language because in the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence, we have metrics are things like the F1 measures, the area under the curve, all those kind of mean squared error and things like that, that actually access the performance of a model. But whereas futures are really like the input parameters that you give to try to select which future combination gives a better prediction and things like that, which is quite different from our world in open source. So in a way, abstract way of thinking, in the machine world, futures are kind of equivalent to our matrices. It's just terminologies and the language thing within communities. Yeah. And uh, I think that probably will solidify in the coming years, like what should be the standard there. And yeah. currently we have developed this. This was an experiment from our side to begin with that have grown to a very much larger scale. So it's not open source yet, but of course it will be open sourced. And if the community thinks that the terminology is wrong, I will definitely merge that pull request. Yeah, I just have to say, well, you have expressed a very rich expose of your work and what you are doing at your company. But on the negative side, you like kill my research. <laughs> because <laughs> I was hoping to build a model of what you have already done to measure the health of ecosystems. So any arbitrary project or community can select certain futures and measure their health. But it's practically what you are already doing. So my question now or concern now is, 
how open are you to collaboration to make sure that we can work to build a very complex set of model that is well representative? I'm very open to that. This project will be open sourced when we have ensured that the model is scalable. This is the challenge now that we need to put some limits to it so that we can see that it actually scales with reasonable costs. I have quite a lot of dashboards on my, I think it's like seven node super cluster that's doing this calculation all 24-7. When we have solidified that scalability, we will open source it and I will not take any pride in what we are measuring and how things are calculated as long as we can calculate it. I think this is not something that we as a company or me as a person definitely should decide. It's a community problem and the community needs to decide how this should be measured, definitely. That's really exciting to hear. And I have heard of other initiatives similarly bringing together large amounts of data into a way that can be analyzable, which is not a word, but as an analyst, it's a practice. I guess one thing that I would express interest in that is it's not just the model that I'm interested in because I think everything you've described has been really exciting and fascinating, but also coming back to that taxonomy question. So you're bringing together multiple different disparate data sources, and you're also melding it with machine learning terminology and just how you actually build these things. And I think what I think is missing also from the conversation is not just being able to have a model in place, but also how you're knitting together all of these different spaces and where terminology might not be consistent across different kinds of data sets or even different individuals that are working with it. So I'm basically saying I'm not only interested in the model, I'm interested in how you're co-referencing across disparate sources with disparate sets of taxonomy and concepts, which I know is, is a hard problem that I know others are interested in. So I'm just putting my hat in the ring that this is also something that we're interested in within the Chaos Project and within some of our research divisions at Google. So we're excited to see this when you're ready to share it. Fantastic. That's uh, great news. And I truly understand exactly what you're meaning by that. And I have so many examples of standards that should be the same standard across different parts of the supply chain, but it's simply don't play well at all. So it's so interesting how this will probably mature quite a lot in the coming years. And we're going to see a lot more leverage in the full software supply chain, open source or not, with terminology and standards and uh, and so on. And uh, and I know that the large companies are doing great work here. And we're coming to the end here. If people who are listening to this podcast would like to keep up on your work and connect with you online, where are you online? Where do you recommend people look for your work? Please just friend me on LinkedIn. Just say hi and we can grab a coffee or uh, have a chat on, on LinkedIn and that's great. Or simply email me. And I'm happy to engage with, with questions and community around measuring open source and understanding the open source communities. So uh, I think those are the best places. Excellent. Now we come to the last segment of today's podcast, our value ads or picks, where we share something that has brought value, meaning, or joy into our lives. And I can kick us off. I'm super excited to be scheduled to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So super excited. My husband and I are both getting the vaccine. And then hopefully we contribute to getting back to a new normal soon. And then another 
value add is I'm currently reading Ready Player One, and it's a really great book that has a lot of 80s references. And I definitely have to read up and listen and watch some of those old references. I'm cheering for you, Georg, virtually and physically. I'm very excited that you're getting a vaccine and enjoying pop culture references from the 80s. I have not left my home in a while. I live in Manhattan and I think my hot take for, I guess, the last six months of home cooking is that I've gotten really into making my own stocks and broths, which sounds pretty boring, but I'd say one quick fun fact, if you save all those extra bits of vegetables that you don't end up cooking with, put them all in the freezer. And then later you can make a broth with them, which is just a a fun way to keep using all the pieces of things and reusing them in ways that can add more complexity to your flavor profile. So save your vegetable scraps and make a broth later. Reuse, reduce, recycle. I love it. I'll have to suggest that to our house. Interesting, Sophia. And that leads me to my task for this week about crunching data. I'll try to be eco-friendly to reuse models that have already been there, not to reinvent the wheel all the time. I'll also try to recycle a lot of things and try to stay healthy, put on my mask and drink a lot of water. Emil, do you want to round this up for today? Yeah, I think that I actually want to just mention one of the projects that I think is the big enabler of our computational platform. It's a couple of friends of mine from my university city, Lund, that have built this task Kubernetes thing as an open source project. It's called CoWait, C-O-Wait, where you can easily make tasks on separate pods in Python. And the open source health, the calculation is built on that. That has brought me a lot of time saved in this development. And uh, I think that project needs some attention, even if it's in its very early days of development. That's awesome. Great shout out. It is time to say thank you. Thank you, Emil, for joining us today. And thank you for having me. This has been great. I've read uh, a lot uh, about you and of you on the Chaos Projects and um, looked on a lot of your code as well. So it's, uh, it's been really nice having a chat about this very fun thing as well. Yeah, our pleasure. And thank you, Armstrong and Sophia, for being our panelists today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having us. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us, podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.